1: Following the truth, wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from the Great White North and his studio beneath the stairs.
0: Here's Richard. Welcome to another episode of Strange Planet. Thanks for sticking me in your ear. In the late 1800s and early 1900s, homeopathy was popular across all classes of society. In the United States, there were more than 100 homeopathic hospitals, more than 1,000 homeopathic pharmacies, and 22 homeopathic medical schools. In particular, homeopathic psychiatry flourished from the 1870s to the 1930s, with thousands of documented successful outcomes in treating mental illness and we're going to talk about sane asylums the success of homeopathy before psychiatry lost its mind that's the title of a brand new book by jerry m Cantor. jerry is a faculty member of the ontario college of homeopathic medicine and owner of vital force healthcare a boston area homeopathy and acupuncture practice the first acupuncturist to receive an academic appointment at Harvard Medical School's Department of Anesthesiology. And Jerry is the author of also in- Interpreting Chronic Illness, The Toxic Relationship Cure, and Autism Reversal Toolbox. And he joins us from his home in Dedham, Massachusetts. Jerry, welcome to the program. How are you? Thank you
2: very much. I'm I'm really fine. Pleasure to be with you, Richard. Likewise. Uh, can you give us a definition? What
0: is homeopathy or homeopathic medicine?
2: Well, uh this is the way of practicing according to the principle of using like to cure like. And um, again, because because uh, there's been so much disinformation and mischaracterization, people tend to think that homeopathy is synonymous with anything holistic, a word that starts with age, herbs, another word that starts with age, anything gentle. Um, not true, not true, not true. Homeopathy means one thing and one thing only, the law of similars, using like to cure like. So homeo means same as apathy relates to sickness, like to cure like, that means when a homeopath meets you, um, the idea is to get to know you really, really well uh, and understand your total symptom picture uh, and be, be able to match that with the uh, toxic effect of some kind of a substance, which can be a botanical, can be a, a, of the venom of a snake or a spider or something. It could be a mineral compound. It could be a gas, something that we homeopaths have researched very extensively under highly scientific conditions, um, um, and inculcating a certain state in random healthy people um, with mental and emotional characteristics so that we can then, com- once once that is, that is uh, compiled and put into the Materia Medica, the, ma- the matching game begins. Someone comes into my office and I say to myself, huh, it's as if this was a random person who was poisoned by lead or this is a person who was poisoned by a plant called Staposagria. Of course, that's not necessarily true but the matching is correct because we know exactly what the influence of that substance is on healthy individuals. So um, I'm going to give you a long answer here.
0: No, no, it's this is good stuff.
2: Giving the dilute version of that, the dilute version of that substance, you then can count on a paradoxical effect. What it caused in a gross amount, it cures in a dilute amount. And um, you know, when I was in junior high school, a teacher said something very interesting to me which I, I, I store, stored away, said any living, any living any definition of life must include the property of irritability. What that means is that you poke it and it reacts. Kind of simple, but, uh, and I thought it was funny when I was in junior high school. But it's really true. So I'm an acupuncturist, right? And acupuncture is a poking. It's a mini, 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 mini stabbing. And homeopathy is a poking. It's a mini, 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 mini poisoning. Now, how you poke and what you expect are two different things. Um, yes, if you, of course, stab somebody with a knife, that's not good. But the mini version of that, the acupuncture needle, is a wonderful thing because you're, you're exploiting the body's irritability. And with homeopathy, obviously, you don't want to poison anybody with arsenic. But the highly dilute version of arsenic, arsenicum, uh, that pokes a certain kind of individual who's highly anxious, for example, and perfectionistic and has all kinds of digestive problems, that person poked with the dilute version of arsenic, um, receives a healing dose. I would say that the remedy, so many metaphors that apply to this, is uh, like a permission slip to the subconscious, which is the vital force imbued with its physical characteristics, to deal with an issue that it has not done everything in its power to avoid or to suppress. The vital force encounters this substance, which includes this theme, and it says, oh my God, I hate that. That's horrible. What the hell is that? But wait a minute, wait a minute. There's hardly any of it here. Huh. OK, I guess I'll, I'll deal with this. So another way of putting this is that homeopathy at the constitutional level prompts the vital force, or prompts the sub- subconscious of the individual to revisit the scene of the crime, re-engage with your demon, re-engage with your trauma under more favorable circumstances. Um, it releases, and it, in doing so, it releases a, a, prompts a reaction that actually wants to happen but has not been able to happen because the impetus has been so consistent or so traumatic that the vital force has not been able to deal with it and has sort of covered it up. So when with remedies, we're peeling one layer away at a time when we give one remedy at a time, and this is how somebody gets healthy. I've told you quite a bit there, but uh, oh, I'll give you one more, one more me- metaphor to really simplify this because it's really advanced placement common sense. Uh, sometimes I'll uh, tell people about the expression to get back on the horse that threw you what does that mean you know well the uh, it means especially in a a culture where riding a horse is a matter of life and death where everything depends on it if you're thrown by a horse and you're terrified of ever getting on one again that could be a really bad thing well you may not want to get back on the same crazy horse that threw you but maybe a junior version like a pony so now you're up on that pony's back and you say oh my god i'm on a horse again this is horrible something terrible is going to happen And then you get led around the corral gently and you say, wait, nothing's happening here. Nothing's happening. And by the time the little ride is over, you get off the pony and you say, you know, I guess it wasn't all horses. Maybe it was just that one, that one horse. I'm back to baseline. So that's a way of achieving homeostasis. Homeopathy is something like that, except rather than just getting back to homeostasis, the remedy is like a bomb placed deep in the subconscious. And it's so specific that when it goes off, the entire internal landscape is changed and, you pro- and uh, when the smoke clears and the dust settles, you are in a different place. You are not that same person who was traumatized um, by being abused or bullied or, or having, uh, having, having had a, a devastating loss um, or, or some terrible injury. The remedy was so specifically tailored to you that you overcome it. You, re- you re- revisit the crime, as I say, under more favorable circumstances. And uh, the simplest version of, the, of comparison is getting back on the horse to throw you.
0: I mean, this, this seems almost obvious. Uh, So why is it so homeopathy becomes so controversial?
2: Oh, uh, completely for economic reasons, completely for economic reasons. Um, And that's, uh, if you read my book, Sane Asylums, you'll get a a, a big picture understanding of that. Why this wonderful uh, medicine, which is uh, the the remedies are not, uh, are not patented. Nobody owns them. So the profit motive doesn't work. They just simply work. But they're not going to make a lot of money for a pharmaceutical company. So it was very important to the medical profession and the pharmaceutical industry to suppress knowledge of this. I'm really simplifying things because it happened over a period of time. Um, it's just way too threatening. Just like acupuncture was really fought tooth and nail originally because, my God, if people went to acupuncture for their pain, who's going to buy pain medicines? You know, And acupuncture succeeded because it simply works. And um, you know, when I started out, We had to practice secretly. We were called voodoo doctors and made fun of all over the place. Now, people come out of Ivy League schools and they become acupuncturists and it's licensed in every single state. No thanks to the medical profession or to science. Absolutely nothing. All their research was completely trivial and useless. But people voted with their feet and they went for it because they knew it worked. Homeopathy will also never go away for the same reason. Um, But a huge effort has been made, I have to say, writing this book. I've couldn't believe how much suppression there was. The story of these amazing homeopathic utopian uh, mental hospitals was eradicated, actually whitewashed from the medical history books, um, the story of uh, and the websites that were of, of the hospitals that were homeopathic and the medical schools that were homeopathic. you won't find any um, mention of this. Uh, there's a tremendous attempt to paint this homeopathy as a, as, a, as a sect or some kind of a heresy. Nothing could be further from the truth. It had a tremendous presence, um, and um, (laughs) there's a lot to hide because it's just so darn threatening. This is the first book to come out in quite some time, that's you know an honest depiction of 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 what of the homeopathic history, and it's also uh, one of the very rare books that's written by a homeopath. So you can you know not somebody who's got an axe to grind coming out of uh, um, what's the uh, what's that medical school down in Baltimore that puts out these history books that are, that are really so false. Johns um, Hopkins? Johns Hopkins, yeah, their books, they're the ones that will portray it as a sect or a heresy. Complete, complete nonsense. Um, so, yeah, I'm hoping that the um, uh, waters break and, and more books like this come out because it's really quite a rabbit hole I fell down into and a tremendous amount of information of tremendous interest. For example, Mary Todd Lincoln. Yes. Um, 150 years now. I mean, uh, that story seems to have been completely picked over. Um, even though Lincoln scholarship is really uh, very extensive. No one's told the story that I uncovered that Mary Todd Lincoln, who was declared incurably insane by a gigant, by a trial with 14 doctors, that was the trial of the century, basically um, I have a very powerful case that she was cured over a period of four months in what I call a sane asylum, you know, by somebody practicing homeopathy. Um, it's a very strong case for that. That no, story's we- not been told. So it's a, 150-year-old uh, literary uh, journalistic coup that I hope gets gets read.
0: I, I want to come back to Mary Todd Lincoln in that specific case, but I just wanted to back up a minute. I, I, I had an, a conversation recently with someone who wrote a book uh, about the, I guess he called them the monastic mediciners that accompanied the chivalric orders during the Crusades. So these were their doctors and their surgeons. They were called monastic mediciners. And... Um, when you said, like, treats like, that sounds very familiar because he used that same language. So I'm just wondering, what, you know, these monastic medicineers, whether they likely were also utilizing homeopathic medicine, uh, or in other words, how, how far back does this this practice go?
2: Oh, it goes back to Paracelsus. I mean, anything true uh, has always been known on some, on some level. Um, just certain cultures really... Went very far with it. Yeah, Paracelsus taught this. It's also in Chinese medicine to some extent. Um, it's uh, it's as old as the idea of get back on the horse that threw you. We we know we have to face our demons. Um, so I'm not surprised it's been um, it's in it's in other cultures. But every once in a while, someone really um, goes wild with an idea. I mean, rubbing something that hurts on your body. You know, rubbing it or or uh, um, you, know, you know, strong massage. That exists everywhere, everybody knows that, but the Chinese really took just decided how far can we take this idea? What are these places that we're rubbing? You know, can we also rub places or stimulate places that are not proximal to where the injury is? And it took five thousand you know, over five thousand years of, of really concentrating on this, they developed this amazing system of of Chinese medicine the, and the Meridian, and discovered the Meridian system. So the principles are old, and the the law of similar is simply a law of nature. By the way, that's why, homeopathic remedies have an unusual stature. Uh, People don't know this, there's so much So much misinformation. They are drugs. The FDA said so, said so in 1938, even before. Um, They are drugs because the law of similars was recognized as being a law of nature, absolutely true. That means you don't have to put every single remedy through the process of a randomized controlled trial to see if it works. It doesn't, you don't have to because the law of similars works, it always has. So anything that's gone through homeopathic research called approving, in other words, showing what it does to healthy people, automatically, the FDA said this, doesn't like to admit it anymore, that the the dilute version of that can be used to treat somebody who manifests that symptom complex.
0: So take us back to the late 1800s when there were over 100 homeopathic hospitals across the United States. I mean, where were they? What did they
2: look like? How did they operate? Um, uh, well, <laughs> i tell you the truth before, in, in that era, before the pharmaceuticals came along, um, there was a lot of overlap between conventional medicine and homeopathy. Um, everybody was using basically the same things and using different amounts of that stuff. Um, but people who were trained by, uh, by homeopaths and were disciples of Hahnemann. And by the way, those are many, many of those homeopaths were physicians who converted. They recognized that their own medicine stunk and they were harming clients, and then they would they would find that the homeopathic treatment would work miracles, and they converted. Uh, there were probably more convert physicians than people who went directly into the homeopathic practice. Um, and a lot of places, so it wasn't really, a lot of places were practicing a mixture, they wouldn't admit that they were specifically homeopathic or not. And I have lots of instances of that. In fact, that's what happened with Mary Todd Lincoln. The person who treated her did not officially declare himself a homeopath, but he kept no records, and uh, supposedly all he practiced was uh, moral care and the homeopaths who referred Mary Todd Lincoln to him, like Stanton, uh, I was all wink, wink. We know what you're doing. You've got a secret weapon, you know, hand holding and respecting somebody and giving them activities cannot cure madness. It's impossible. How would you get a reputation like that without having that secret weapon? And um, that, that might've been circumstantial. It's more than that. But at, uh, for example, the butler, But the Butler Hospital, which was not officially homeopathic and had a fantastically stellar reputation for treating madness, it had a secret weapon that's absolutely incontrovertible, which was Samuel Worcester, who was a major homeopath, wrote a very big book on the homeopathic treatment of of madness. So it was an unclear situation. There was a lot of overlap. People would poach from each uh, each other all the time. Conventional physicians would find that on their own, That some dilute version of a a medicine worked much better. And they thought they invented the whole thing each time over and over again, never giving credit to the homeopaths. There was a physician by the name of David Dice Brown, who kind of called out at some point, called so-called timeout and said, hey, come on, guys, who are you kidding? And he wrote this book called uh, The Permeation of Modern-Day Medicine by Homeopathy, pointing out, you know, look at this. You guys are doing homeopathy left and right. You're just not admitting it. Come on, cut it out. You know, but... um, Anyway, people, physicians like to have control over the amount of something they gave. And it was kind of kind of known that it was a very different thing to give a gross amount as opposed to a minor amount. And you get a very different effect. But the political r- rivalry between the schools was still very intense, primarily because homeopaths were so good and so popular, they were making a lot of money and they were eating the, home- the conventional physician's lunch. And they, the, these, the doctors complained. Yeah, this is not fair. I have all this education. Everybody's going to the homeopath, and that's why the AMA was created. <laughs> Another story that's been been se- severely, you know, se- securely batten down that people so people don't know it.
0: Uh, a thousand homeopathic pharmacies. So give us a sense, like what would you what would you find back then in a homeopathic pharmacy?
2: Oh, oh by the way, in those days, the uh, the, the dis- they were called dispensaries too. They they could pr- they could, you could go there and get treated. It was not that political dis- dis, uh, distinction between a pharmacist and a physician. Well, uh, yeah, the pharmacist would have had uh, what I have, an armamentarium of remedies, hundreds and hundreds of remedies made from all these things. And they would have some books there, Homeopathic Materia Medica. Um, and they'd be in little vials, these remedies. And uh, you'd go there and, and, and be prescribed for You'd go there with a the condition. And uh, the homeopath would uh, look at you, ask you a bunch of questions, um if someone brought you because you were so sick, um, he or she would do the same thing, you know, examine you, look at your, at your, look at your face, uh, sign, you know, figure out whether you chilled or not. Look, look, look very carefully at, at your symptoms, take an inventory of them, and prescribe basic, basically using the mental and the emotional picture as the guiding the, the guiding principle. So when, when you're sick, you're not a car, you're not just the sum of all these physical physical complaints. How you are when you're sick matters a great, great deal to homeopaths. We don't send you to the psychiatrist because we don't understand what, what you're talking about. If you're raving, if you're complaining, if you're crying, if you can't, don't wanna talk, um, if you're weeping or if you can't weep, um, if you're jumpy, if you're restless, uh, all these things would be taken note of and uh, you know very careful note of and be guiding, uh, guiding principles to the accurate prescription. Because any physical symptom that you can, you can think of, uh, a cough or uh, a diarrhea or constipation, there are hundreds and hundreds of remedies that treat that. To narrow it down, we have to figure out what, what kind of soil that symptom grew in. And that has a lot to do with what the person's like. When I take someone's case, Richard, the most important question I ask, if they're not an animal or an infant, is what is your hot button? What's the situation you least like to be in? Um, What will get an emotional response out of you? And when that button is pushed, what do you do? Do you get drunk? Do you get irritable? Do you get angry? Do you withdraw? Do you write a poem? Um, That's a huge amount of information in that one particular question. If I have to go deep into your life, I'll ask a brutal question like, what's the worst thing that ever happened to you? I might also ask more cheerful questions like, how are you famous in your family? What stories were told about you as a child? So you can, we, can, we can prescribe in homeopathy based on a person's strengths as well as weaknesses. Um, uh, we get the whole picture. We don't break you down into parts.
0: That's remarkable. Uh, Jerry, we'll take a quick time out. We'll come back and uh, continue to discuss homeopathy and Sane Asylums, the success of homeopathy before psychiatry lost its mind.
1: Welcome back back. to Richard Serrett's Strange Planet.
0: We're back with Jerry M. Cantor, the author of Sane Asylums, The Success of Homeopathy Before Psychiatry Lost Its Mind. Were they actually called sane asylums?
2: No, they weren't. They were called, uh, lingo was completely different, that's my term for it, because they were utopias and they really were a very sane way of helping the mentally ill who had problems of, of life. They were not, you know, psychotics and schizophrenics and, they they were they were they were viewed as people who had run into some trouble and lost their lost their reason lost their orientation and the people who worked there especially the nurses fought tooth and nail with uh, the idea of moral hygiene to get people to to get their own balance the idea was not to drug them and send them into the into into the community again where they would just get by as as uh as zombies uh, people were very committed and they took the time you know, time to uh, to do this. The people were given actual asylum. They could stay there a long time and engage in activities like uh, farming and, and playing musical instruments and writing. They were taken away from their stressful environments. They were allowed to rest. They were given good diets. They had fresh air. And of course, they had the benefit of these, these amazing homeopathic remedies.
0: Okay, so let's talk about some of these remedies. Um, I don't know if someone was catatonic or... Um, I mean, how, how would they, they go about, you know, determining what the, the, the actual remedy would be? And can you give yeah. me some examples of remedies?
2: Oh my God. Uh, how much time do you have? <laughs> well, again, it's not, we don't prescribe based on any one symptom. There could be six people who are catatonic and they'll be there for very different reasons. In those days, it might well have been the advanced stages of alcoholism. Uh, it might've been a third stage of, 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 of syphilis, um, catatonia. Um paresis. I mean they, they had different lingo at that point. So by the time people got there, um they had they had pretty advanced cases. Give me another condition. That that one I'd, I'd have How to go depression? Through. How about depression? Oh, depression. Depression, sure. Depression. Well, you could if someone was, was deeply depressed and apathetic and um also the physical symptoms would be bloating. And um, suddenly would come in, like a woman would come and say she didn't love her husband anymore, and she just didn't have anything to live for. Uh, that might be sepia, a remedy made from the ink of the of the cuttlefish. So the, the the metaphor there is that it muddies the waters. The ink, the cuttlefish squirts this ink into the water, and then as a defense, you can't see it, but it can't see where it is either. When someone needs the remedy sepia, her life is kind of uh, the waters are muddied. She doesn't quite know where she is in life. Her husband may be stepping out on her. Um, she she uh, she just doesn't know. Well, one of the gates would be with women, you know, um, marriage or pregnancy or me- menopause. Any of those stages may not have gone well for her and confused her as to her psychosexual identity. And you, you hope in that situation, the hope becomes toxic. This is somebody who is um, basically a, a natural woman. She's invested in the future. She loves to dance. Things should go in a certain way as they should. But disappointment has kind of dragged her down. And her psyche is trying to have it both ways, wants to be optimistic, but also knows something's going wrong. And so uh, everything has a half-hearted quality to it. And and you see how specific this gets. That's a certain Mm -hmm. kind of depression. And sepia, when it's prescribed, um, will uh, allow her to overthrow that state. When she comes out of it, she may be angry or she may be sad, but she's going to have a much clearer idea of where she is, and she'll be able to do something that she couldn't do before. That's one example of, I mean, th- these, these terms like depression are just very, very inadequate. Much more specific is, is the remedy itself. So the remedy is the diagnosis, and the remedy is the treatment. Um, if someone is just crying all the time, and she feels abandoned, and uh, all she wants to, you know, she at, c- cries at the drop of a hat, and she's very, very changeable, um, likely her trauma has been abandonment or fear of abandonment. And then the remedy pulsatilla comes into play. Um, pulsatilla, what is that? It's made from the windflower. These these are fla- flower remedies that I'm mentioning to you. Um, depression remedies. Natura muriaticum is made from chloro- uh, sodium chloride, which is simply table salt. Um, that's a major remedy for somebody who has been stuck in grief. Uh, they cannot get over a particular grief. These are people who say they can't cry. They've lost somebody really important and... Uh, they they just can't cry. Or if they cry, they resist consolation, and they will only do it in private. Um, and part of that picture is that it can affect your vision. People can have blurred vision. You can have nausea, all kinds of digestive problems. But also some innocuous types of sim- symptoms that the homeopath will notice. They'll have very practical hairstyles. They have a very, very uh, serious kind of pinched look to their face. There might be nurses. Uh, because they want their cake and eat it too. They want to have intimacy, but they also keep it at arm's length. They have been hurt by the fact that they were very close to someone, often their mother, and then the loss of that relationship um, has made them very self-contained. They're like a country that sends all its resources to the periphery, and it looks from the outside, looks like it's got it all together, but the inside is tender and weak, and you don't realize the, the price that's been paid. Um, that's a classical grief grief remedy. And when you give that, it kind of explodes the grief. They become more in contact with it. They become more emotive, but they move through that. Um, so, yeah, these remedies, I mean, they're amazing. I mean, we, because they go so deeply into someone's uh, character, their psyche. Um, I, I, I do want to say uh, uh, the problem with conventional psychiatry, why I say it's lost its mind, it's also lost its soul, is because, of course, it's all driven by money. And the goddamn drugs make people sick. We, we as a as a, develop, as a um, highly developed country, we have a, we have terrible health, mental health care statistics. Read the books of Robert Whitaker. they're, they're a shock um, Madden America and uh, anatomy of an epidemic. Developing countries which have not been um, treated by our tend- the tender mercies of our psych- psychiatric profession have far, far better mental health statistics than we have. They've have been conditions like tardive dyskinesia, the pi- five kinds of bipolarity that we talk about. The kinds of anxiety that's prevalent in this country um it's been it's a, it's a crime frankly it's been uh, perpetrated on the public part of it is just this pushing of pushing of these these powerful medications on people and the other part is uh this tremendous effort to uh, uh minimize marginalized homeopathy which is far far better as a as a kind of medicine and i'll beat that drum for a long time and um i i think the facts speak for themselves
0: All right i'm going to take another time out then i want to do uh get back to mary todd lincoln and talk a little more in a little more detail about that case jerry Cantor stays with us the author of sane asylums the success of homeopathy before psychiatry lost its mind
1: Truth will set you free. Free, free. But first, it will really tick you off. Welcome back to Richard Serrett's Strange Planet.
0: So let's get back to uh, Mary Todd Lincoln. She was basically certified as as uh, insane. Uh, yes. When did this happen? This um, this episode of insanity, so called, was was this before Abraham Lincoln was president, or?
2: After... No, after after he was assassinated. But uh, everything kind of came to a head. She was in trouble for quite some time. I mean, she lost two children. She was also a, a pariah in Washington because she was from the South. Her family actually were slaveholders. She never felt comfortable there. And um, she, yeah, she, she attracted the trolls of that time. There was someone who went after her. Uh, just awful saying that Abraham Lincoln never loved her. He had someone else he loved much, much more. She was a a, uh, a consolation prize, yeah. And she went stark raving mad. I mean, in terms of having hallucinating and um, her the visions that she had, and uh, spending a tremendous amount of money. And her son uh, Robert basically uh, said, "This is you know, this is she's really harming herself. We got to do something about this." And so he uh, he um, pushed the issue. And a a trial was held to determine her sanity. Um, Everybody came, you know, 14 doctors, and many, many witnesses came through testifying to how how out of control she was. She was deeply in grief. So many theories have come up about it uh, since that time, that she had syphilis, that she had um, dysentery, cholera, I don't know, all all kinds of things. And, um, well, (laughs) she got sent to this asylum in in, uh, this little sanitarium in Bellevue, Illinois, which was uh, run by a man called Richard Patterson, who, as I say, was a shrewd cookie. He didn't really say what he he did. He kept them things to kept things very private. But homoeopaths referred him referred her there, and within four months, uh, she's sitting on the porch talking to Patterson's daughter and writing letters and conversing and going on on carriage rides. And then uh, some lawyers contacted her, or she was able to contact the lawyers, and they got her out. And a couple of months later, she was declared as sane as anybody else. Um, The story that I'm telling, (laughs) that Richard Patterson did something there, that's not been told. The two stories that have been told, neither of them makes any sense at all. One is that she was never crazy in the first place. That's not true. That's simply not true. And the other was, well, she just had clever lawyers, and uh, somehow she got better on her own. That doesn't make any sense either.
0: (laughs) So what is the real
2: story? The real story is that Patterson, I mean, he didn't keep records, but the the Bellevue asylum that he he had— arose at exactly the time that the Middletown hospital in, in New York arose. Homeopathy was completely at a zenith. And he would have known exactly what she needed. He would have be, been able to detox her from chlorohydrate. He would have, I, I could speculate as the remedies that he gave her. Um, I I don't know he didn't do that. As I say, this was to his advantage, incredible advantage. He didn't want to lose all his standing. And he didn't talk about what he did, which is uh, very interesting. Um, I think he treated her homeopathically. I'm quite certain of it. To the extent to which I do know what was said about him, and again, this is all code, they said he used the popular medicines of his time. That could mean nothing but homeopathy because nothing in the conventional armamentarium could have accomplished what he would have, could have done what he did.
0: Can you speculate as, as to maybe what some of those remedies m- m- might have been? I mean, if you were presented with a case- Yeah, actually, American I have million.
2: that I have that in my chapter. Um, let's see what I have here. I can read you the, the end of it. Yes. <laughs> um, but you'd have so some of this is is for home, homeopaths, of course. Okay, so here's my, here's the last paragraph of my chapter on Mary Todd Lincoln. What homeopathic drugs might Dr. Patterson have selected? Prescribing from a distance is speculative. Yet cursory inspection of Mrs. Lincoln's case suggests the appropriateness of rubrics. So these are rubrics are, 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 are um, symptom, com, symptoms that, that are, are connected with certain um, with uh, rem, symptoms that are connected with remedies. Okay, so what are the rubrics? Avarice, squanders money, ailments from grief, humiliation, mortification, ailments from fear, sleeplessness, and hysteria. So if a homeopath puts those types of, of uh, symptoms into his, his or her uh, homeopathic program, various remedies would come up. And then you have to sort of kick their tires and see which one is, is most, uh, most appropriate. Well, what that would bring up, not this will mean anything to you, but the remedies that I came up were clematis, Kefia, Hyoscyamus, Ignatia, Lachesis, Mercurius, Nox Vomica, Opium, Pulsatilla, which I mentioned before, Sepia, and Syphilinum. Uh, what was actually recommended remains a mystery and uh, perhaps will be revealed in further findings of uh, what I call the homeopathic Dead Sea Scrolls. <laughs> <laughs> but I, if you were a homeopath, I could explain my reasoning behind each of those remedies.
0: Administering... Uh or a remedy that involves sepia, for example. You said that comes from a cuttlefish? Yes. How? I mean, what would have gone through someone's mind to make that connection that I'm gonna take the ink from a
2: cuttlefish to cure depression? How, how did that happen? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. That's a fantastic question. You know, if the entire materia medica of homeopathy vanished overnight, of thousands of remedies, we could start all over again with com- entirely new remedies, you know, and going through the process. I don't know how sepia was selected. Uh, many of the other remedies were made from the existing medicines like uh, arsenic and uh, belladonna and uh, borax. These were all remedies, remedies, medicines that were used by the conventional uh, medic- medical uh, professionals. And uh, often they caused so much harm that homeopaths said, oh my God, I've got to clean that up and, and made a, a, a dilute version of it pr- principally to clean it up. Mercury is a prime example of that. Mercury was the, was found to suppress the symptoms of syphilis which was ra- uh, rampant and um this is a good story here actually um but people got scared of doctors because they were constantly using mercury off off uh, indication and people were going nuts they uh, they would became mad as hatters and so people got very afraid of the physicians who were using mercury now the other word for mercury is quicksilver and so these doctors were called quickers and then quack, quicks and then quacks uh-huh. the physicians were called that and the homeopaths had to clean up the mess And uh, they made the dilutions of mercury to treat that. And then very ironically and unjustly, homeopaths get called quacks now. It's completely the inverse. Um, But things like uh, sepia, um, you know, many things in in the natural, in the, um, well, many, 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 uh, you know, herbs were, there were many herbs that were converted to homeopathic remedies. I don't know about sepia, why that happens. Someone had a brainstorm about it and uh, made that amazing remedy. Samuel Hahnemann himself, who had a huge family, the founder of homeopathy, as I understand it, he woke up one morning and said, you know, I'm going to get some potassium and cook it up and feed it to everybody in my family. And he did. He was he had some insight about it. And uh, that was the proving of a remedy called causticum, which is a fantastic remedy uh, with a huge, huge application. People who need causticum are champions of the underdog. And uh, they, they are uh, they're tree huggers and they're incredibly empathic. And they get their anxiety, very, very anxious because they're constantly worried that something is going to happen to somebody who's in a vulnerable position. And on the physical level, that includes uh, they, they will also manifest uh, all kinds of respiratory problems. They will eventually become paralyzed by by uh, by their by their empathy, their 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 their, their um, uh, tendency to become spasmodic um, anyway. Why on earth did Hahnemann wake up and decide to do that? I have no idea.
0: <laughs> I'm a, I'm, Jerry, I'm a, a huge baseball fan, so you have to tell me about the uh, the story behind the Asylum's baseball team.
2: Yeah, that's a great story. That's what got me down this in the first place. I was thinking about writing and uh, doing something impossible, was which was writing a history of the homeopathic hospitals, there are hundreds and hundreds of them. So that was a, a non-starter. And then somehow I stumbled on this amazing story about... A baseball team that was sponsored by a mental hospital and the team was called the asylums so what the heck and middletown hospital in new york that's where it began selden talcott uh, realized that the, the inmates loved watching baseball they were completely enraptured by it and they were much better wa- during the watching the games and, and afterwards initially too uh, at the baseball field there the the staff and the inmates played together uh but the, 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 what he created, a, a, a monster team that was just fantastic and included Jack Chesbro, who went to the Hall of Fame later on. They played everybody. They beat everybody. They lost very narrowly to some major league teams. Wow. Um, it's, it's just a, a great, great story. Uh, as a contrast to that, when baseball took off. He set a trend at the other hospitals, homeopathic or non-homeopathic. And, um, uh, yeah, a lot of asylums had, had baseball teams. In Utica, which was a notorious mental hospital, not homeopathic, where they had a, a horrible device called the Utica crib, basically a, a little coffin-sized tiger cage where they put you in to punish you, to break your spirit, and, and uh, pacify you. Um, they, in Utica, a, a minor league team was created, which was called the pent-ups. I find that hysterical, but that was a nod to that, 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 that hospital there. My fantasy is I ever write a TV series about this that the pent-ups and the asylums would have played a game, but they were they were they were they were not, um, they were not in the same league. They didn't do that. But although the pentups, the the asylums, I think actually did get some players from the pent-ups eventually. So a, this the baseball story is uh, just absolutely amazing. And I, and I wrote a big chapter in this book on or where I just really um, extend Seldon Talcott's argument into all the ways in which baseball is incredibly therapeutic because of the ways in which it it replicates ordinary life situations and there's many many reasons why it's the most therapeutic sport that you can think of.
0: I've I've always felt that intuitively, but I've never been able to put my hand on, handle on why. I mean, you know, you, it's it's supposed to be a baseball. It's you, you go to see the sport in a played in a park. You know, there's no there's no uh, set time frame. You know, it's not like a four-hour game. It's it can go on forever.
2: It's a lot like life in so many ways. I mean, I, I could talk about that chapter all day. But I mean, basically, you know, not much goes on in everyday life, right? And only once in a while, you got to do something. Baseball the same way. A lot of times, <coughs> the players are standing around scratching, <coughs> or, you know, chewing gum or just, uh, you know, bantering. And then all of a sudden, at one point, they have to become very alert and, and jump into action. Um, or also a lot of the things that you do in a game, even at major league level, maybe you or I could do catch a pop fly, maybe throw a ground ball. If you hit a home run, you don't have to run hard, just trot around the bases. And then the, the, uh, the fact that so many things are, are you get, you, get, you, get uh, you cut slack for. you can run outside of the foul lines. You can hit, catch a home run and tumble into the stands. It's, it's a very human game and it can you know, the, just like a human lifespan can be like two months or it can be 104 years. A baseball game can go any length. It can, it can, you know, go on forever. There's many, many things. Plus the fact, all the idiosyncrasies of the games, all the crazy nicknames. It's, it's p- politically incorrect to call people these things. But in baseball, you can make fun of somebody because of their, their build, their proclivities, their religion. I mean, a lot of thing is, it, things, things are, are possible. It's, it's just a fantastically ritualistic, the uh, meaningful and and powerful game.
0: I'm wondering if Ken Kesey was aware of the Asylum's baseball team because, of course, in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, there's that great scene, Jack Nicholson playing Randall P. Murphy, who's in an asylum, and he tells the nurse, I just want to watch the damn World Series.
2: Oh, my God. I, did, I forgot about that. That's right. That's right. That's right. He, I, he may not have consciously been aware of it. I mean, very few people, 100, 150 years later, know anything about this. If you go to the, the middle hotel hospital now, this is disgraceful but it's one of the few places they'll leave the word homeopathy around to create an association between the horrors that took place much much later you know uh, in, in places like that when overcrowding took, t- took them over. Um, yeah, um, it's now a place you go for a Halloween thrill and the early history of it when it was a was a magnificent utopia, self-sustaining farm, um, you know full of full of idealism, um, that doesn't come across at all. It's so, it's so awful.
0: Are there any sane asylums left?
2: Oh, uh, not in this country, I'm afraid. I mean, people like me practice. We always fantasize about it. I have a fever dream at the end of the book where I absolutely fantasize about getting one of these places again. There's a, there's a, 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 a big building in my neighborhood in Natick called Elm Bank which has been a monastery, it's been a school, it's now like a, a horticultural institute. I would, it's on beautiful grounds. It would be perfect. We need a place where we can treat our, our really seriously ill people who, are, who have to be seen on a 24-hour basis, who are addicted to medicines. Um, it's, we, the job is too big to be done entirely on an outpatient basis. All of our, All of us homeopaths fantasize about that. We would love to have it come back. If I created one, that's my fever dream. At the end of the book, um, yeah, there would be neuro, uh, there'd be acupuncturists there, talented therapists, neurobiofeedback people, um, skilled therapists. I would have a baseball franchise called the Juggernauts. <laughs> <laughs> I would bring there, um, but and of course, fantastic nurses <clears throat> like Clara Barris to, to be the caretakers. I, we 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 would love to have it come back, but it's it's a fantasy, like having the Dodgers come back to Brooklyn. Right. Um, was there
0: a, a concerted effort to, to close all of the homeopathic pharmacies and, and medical schools down? I mean, and, and were the Rockefellers involved?
2: Yes, you've got it right, Richard, absolutely. The uh, Carnegie and Rockefeller conspired to create this Flexner report because they wanted to clear the field for their uh, petrochemical uh, patentable drugs. And they succeeded this bogus campaign against the uh, curriculum of all these schools. They killed Thompsonianism, too. <laughs> and it was an amazingly successful thing. Yeah. Uh, they didn't, did they close? I mean, what happened was, it's a complicated history, and I have a chapter in my book called The Concessions to the Spirit of the Time. Um, they didn't just close and be replaced. They gradually lost their identity, and they remained homeopathic in name only. And the homeopaths just couldn't resist it at, at some point, bit by bit. Um, Many some it was very difficult to re, retain remain a school purely on homeopathic terms. They did bring start bringing in surgeons, they brought in people who, who did a lot of conventional research to a large extent. They continued treating homeopathically, then uh, they couldn't do it anymore, and too much money went into the biomedical research. Um, they they uh, yeah, they they their demise was self inflicted in that they they brought conventional physicians onto their faculties. Um, it would be like if the Democratic Party uh invited all the republicans on into, into their platform you know and said we'll have a unified platform here and the republicans took it over the democratic party would vanish or vice versa um, that's the problem with homeopathy every time they made a concession or some kind of compromise it didn't work out well it and now you really see that now because there are so many people who claim oh yeah you know they throw some homeopathic remedies into their naturopathic prescriptions or they claim they're doing homeopathy when none of it is it's so confusing you just don't see any pure homeopathy at a, at the large level that it was in the 1850s, 1860s, 1870s. Just not happening. Um, although people like myself practicing under the radar, yeah, that's where you will see it. But we would love to have the option of hospitalizing somebody at a, what I would call a sane asylum, where there would be no rush to get them into the community. Not We would not be, uh, you know, drugging them to bits. We would be engaging with in moral hygiene, getting them to... Uh, Uh, find their wherewithal by constant dialogue and encouragement and activities, it could be done. There's no reason why it couldn't, except (laughs) the power of of money and the psychopharmacological industry won't have let that happen.
0: Sane Asylums, the success of homeopathy before psychiatry lost its mind. Jerry, how do we get a copy?
2: Oh, okay. Uh, You can get it at um, amazon.com. Just Google uh, Sane Asylums, Jerry Cantor. Uh, if you put, put, add to that uh, Simon & Schuster, the book is distributed by Simon & Schuster. Um, if you put in Inner Traditions, Saint Asylums, it'll come up there. If you go to uh, Dana Ullman's site, Homeopathic Educational Services, you can get it there. Um, I was so glad to get a mainstream publisher because now we'll get into libraries, which is an incredible break, breakthrough. Um, if you do get it and uh, please review it at Amazon.com, tell other people it's very important if we really want to make a change in in this horrible uh kind of uh mental health environment that we have that it breaks into the mainstream and i would say that you know you can argue with homeopathy on scientific grounds you shouldn't because you lose or ideological grounds okay Uh, but for god's sakes the history exists you know you're entitled to know about it it's a crime that these famous medical books histories of, of asylums in this country and medical care. Of, uh, of, of hospitals and mental health care that they whitewash this that they censored this is that the kind of country you want to live in this is not the Soviet Union you should be entitled to at least have the facts in front of you so I, I did a lot of digging to get this to get this out and um, people should just you know learn how how things got the way they are it's not was not written in stone that we would be subject to these kinds of, uh, of drugs that have a numbing and, and, and uh, detrimental effect on us at, at every level, mentally, emotionally, and physically. I would rather not have to detox people from the damn drugs that I've got to treat just to get them back to date to uh, baseline. It makes my work a lot harder. Jerry, fantastic
0: uh, speaking with you. I learned a lot. Thank you so much.
2: My pleasure. You're a great interviewer. and I really enjoyed this show.
1: A new Richard Serrett's Strange Planet
2: drops every
1: Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Subscribe at strangeplanetpodcast.com.